so that really wraps itself into this idea of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's the very nature of obviously life but but also of startups and and something's always changing something's always failing and and you really have to be nimble and, and be able to you know roll with the punches Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Nisha Dua, to our show today. Nisha is a general partner at BBG Ventures, which she co-founded with Susan Lin in 2014. BBG Ventures is a New York-based seed fund investing in consumer tech startups with a focus on women and underrepresented founders. Nisha believes the greatest untapped opportunity for venture capital lies in backing women who are using technology to address common life challenges and transform daily habits. Women are the dominant users of the fastest growing mobile and social platforms, and they make or influence 85% of consumer purchases. Nisha has invested in over 70 startups to date, including a few that you may know, such as Zola, The Sill, Carbon38, and Lola. In addition to her work at BBG Ventures, she founded Built by Girls, a platform that encourages young women to enter tech by introducing them to opportunities, practical skills, and a network of women in the industry. But before all of that, Nisha explored a variety of careers from being a singer, actress, lawyer, and consultant. In our interview, we'll talk to Nisha about how to make career transitions in your life, incredible advice about raising money for your business, and common mistakes too many entrepreneurs make. Welcome to the show, Nisha. Thanks for having me, Yasmin. I'm really excited to chat today. Likewise, I think there's so much in your story and your background that a lot of our listeners can resonate with, especially the way you've navigated various career moves and how certain things have led you to where you are today now managing your own venture fund. I think there's a lot that our listeners can learn from your journey. So I'd love to start with your origin story. You were born in Australia to Indian parents and you actually grew up in a very small town outside of Sydney. You've been very open about how your parents very much had high expectations for you academically. And I think that really navigated a lot of your early adulthood. So can you share more about what your childhood was like and really the expectations you felt growing up? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I really, I'm actually a country girl. I actually grew up in an area five out hours outside of Sydney um, and I'm the least country of all country girls except that I love small small towns and I love nature um, and I think what was really interesting about that experience was you know one being one of the very few uh, brown girls in a very white town in in rural Australia um, and so sort of as a child learning or having some perspective on what it means to be the other, uh, which I think has been really informative, um, even though I, I actually look pretty fair. Um, and, you know, I think the common theme probably between us and many of your listeners is that experience of immigrant parents who uh, sacrificed a lot to, to move countries, um, to live a prosperous life outside their home country. and. You know, my dad came to Australia with pennies in his pocket, you know, rupees in his pocket. Um, and so I think, 
you know, both my parents are academics. My dad was a professor in psychology. My mom was a elementary school teacher. Um, so both, you know, with a heavy background in, in learning and a desire for us to, to perform really well in academics. And that I would say is a constant theme in my family and was a constant theme in, in my childhood. And um, I had two big brothers who were really high performers and that kind of, let's say that set the tone early. And you definitely did well growing up academically. And one thing that you've mentioned in previous interviews is how you always had this love for acting and singing and you had that creative bone within you. But it wasn't something that you necessarily pursued professionally. You actually ended up going to law school, which you've mentioned, you know, when you had your job, it wasn't fulfilling. And you actually felt somewhat depressed when you were in the workforce. So there's a lot there to unpack, but I would love to learn more about your law school journey. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot in that, um, you know, the, the start of it, well, the, the thread of it is, um, you know, expectations of immigrant parents and particularly around that theme of, um, you know, what is the right career, getting great grades, um, and how do you manage that with your passions, um, which for me was obviously at the time singing and acting and being creative. So I did actually... I, I did take the year off um, after college and, and what's different in Australia is you can go to law school straight after um, high school. So it's an undergrad degree. And, you know, frankly, at that point, you're not really ready to make those big decisions. It's a big, it's a big call to make. Um, and so I took the year off and pursued sort of trying to do some screen acting and singing with a band. And I think the first nugget I had there was I was less comfortable putting all my time and effort into practicing for something that I was really out of my control, right? The input that I put in could, was not correlated with the output in terms of hard work. And so where I got to on that piece of it was um, I was really happy if I was on stage making someone smile, but I didn't need to be the next Christina Aguilera. And so that was a really helpful kind of piece of piece of that puzzle. But um, even as I chose to remain in law and pursue a full time career there, um, what I realized was the black and white nature of the law was still lacking in creativity for me. And so that spark of singing and acting was really about creativity. And I found myself much more interested in the business dynamics of the deals I was working on rather than the paperwork. And to be a great junior lawyer, you actually are just really great at filling in paperwork and, and doing the same deal over and over and over again. And that's what makes you a good lawyer. And the, the problem solving, the advising doesn't come until much later. And so I was really missing that. And I think... Um, my reflection on that period and part of the reason I was so unhappy and that was manifesting in kind of a depression at that time um, was really, I think, a tenet that's become pretty important to me, um, which is how do you really as a young person give weight to what gives you energy? Because I think it's where you find energy in something that something that makes you come alive 
um, that that's where you'll be really successful in whatever that is. Um, but if you follow expectation, that's where you're really like sort of suppressing who you are. And I think it's really hard to be really good at something when it's coming out of expectation versus energy. It's true. And I feel like a lot of people aren't even taking the time to see if they're happy, right? You kind of can quickly get stuck in the path of going down what you're expected to do in your life, you know, whether it's your professional or personal career. And I think, you know, really seeing, like you said, what gives you energy is so important you know, very similar to you. And I've talked about this on other episodes. I was in investment banking in the finance world. And I always felt like my energy was sucked out of me, especially a bit later on into my career. So it is so uncommon for someone to leave such coveted jobs, right? I mean, when I wanted to make a leap into a different career, everybody thought I was crazy. So when you were in that moment, how did you feel comfortable with that decision and make that leap to a world outside of law. Yeah, um, and I've, I've actually done that twice. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things you can do to sort of prepare yourself for that bravery is actually just talk to as many people as you can. And what, what I love about big leaps in life is um, they're very rarely so spontaneous um even though they may to the outsider seem like a huge leap of faith um and and i think for me that was true in that i I really went out and i interviewed for lots of different jobs um to to start learning what was out there what were the sorts of jobs that might intrigue me who were the sorts of people i wanted to work with because i think there's a there's a misnomer that you know exactly what job exactly what role um, but what you're really trying to solve for uh, what are the things that make me excited on a day-to-day basis who are the people um, what are the sorts of cultures am I a fast-paced worker do I thrive on you know an independent work schedule do I need to be within a team um, and so you know I had the good fortune of not only having older brothers who'd been in you know, many different jobs before me, having their networks um, and reaching out to friends who are older than me. And, and in fact, um, reaching out to folks on LinkedIn, right, who are one connection away and saying, tell me about your job. And, and that can lead to different opportunities as well. And so I, I think people really underestimate the value of doing that pre-work and expect to go to a job board to talk to a recruiter and suddenly find the opportunity that's right for them when they're unhappy. And I think um, focusing on why you're unhappy and what might make you happier and, and seeing that world of opportunity is when that serendipity starts to happen. And then those things kind of start appearing in front of you and coming to you. I'm so glad you brought that up, Nisha. I'm such a firm believer of that as well. I think reaching out on LinkedIn, reaching out to people, asking questions, you'd really be surprised on how many people will actually give you 10 to 15 minutes when you're coming from a genuine place of curiosity. I know I've definitely done that and I've done a few career 
shifts in my life in different industries. And I think, you know, like you said, anyone who wants to do a big leap into something new, you really do have to do that pre-work and creating that network for yourself is so key. And you're really not going to always find that job posting for the dream job that you're looking for. So really get putting yourself out there, talking to people, I think is really a game changer and a tangible step that I think so many people can do in their lives right now. So you finally made this leap into consulting where you're more focused on business and I'm sure it was your dream job, right? You were working at Bain, which is such a reputable consulting company. Can you talk to us more about your experience there? Because it really was a pivotal moment in your life and the prelude of what was yet to come. Right, right, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it was interesting for a few reasons. One, because I had been so unhappy with the law that when I decided I wanted to get into consulting, I mean, I really put my uh, sort of heart and soul into it in terms of preparation. And I think by the time I did my Bain interviews, I I didn't lose any points in the interview process. I maybe lost one point because I was so determined to, to nail it and get that job. Um, and, and a couple of things happened. One, you know, I talked about people and culture, uh, you know, what gets you going. And so I got this opportunity to work with just some of the smartest people I've ever met, um, all of whom had really interesting personalities. Um, and then on the other hand, I got this sort of grounding in how to build a really great problem solving skill set. Um, and I think, you know, a, a lot of people in the startup world really rail against consultants. Um, which I think is is pretty unfair because what it gives you is this great tool to approach any market opportunity, any customer problem that needs to be solved. And so for me, that was really valuable. It gave me the ability to assess a whole bunch of different businesses. Um, and there's one skill that's really underrated in consulting, which is the idea that you don't have to present a perfect piece of work the first time. And that great pieces of work and great problem solving is iterative. And so, you know, you have a hypothesis and that hypothesis is based on data, right? It's not a made up answer or guess. It's, it's based on data um, and, a, and a gut on the, the problem solving approach. And at every step, you sort of keep iterating it. And that's one of the things that I love talking to new people who are entering the workforce about because it can feel like a really uncomfortable skill. But what you get is this ability to talk with your managers, get buy-in, uh, get advice, get feedback, and make the product better and better as it goes on. And I sometimes think there's a challenge for women, which is I have to present the most perfect product first. But if you can present something and talk through how you got there, that's that will like end up creating way more efficiency and a better outcome for whatever you you work on. I couldn't agree more. I think even just building that momentum for yourself is so key, you know, whether like you said, it's working on a project at work or a business you're starting or a side hustle. It's so important to get those initial steps even out there and then iterate and change and make things even better. But I think that's a way better alternative than waiting for the exact right time to do something or launch something because it's just going to take you way longer. Right, exactly. 
So you actually ended up leaving consulting because you were experiencing some health-related issues, and you did another massive leap in your life. You wanted to move to the States, and you actually accepted a really interesting role as the chief of staff for Susan Lin, who at the time, she was on the board of AOL, but ended up stepping down to run a few businesses within the company. I'm sure, you know, if you were sharing that with your friends and family, they probably thought you were crazy, you know, thinking you're going to work at AOL, like, does AIM even exist? anymore. But I would love for you to take us back to that time because so much of that move to the States and working with Susan really laid the foundation to what you're working on at BBG Ventures today. Yeah, well, um, accepting that job is a really interesting way to start the conversation because I would say there was a big thread of acceptance that had to come for me to make that leap. Um, and so you alluded to the reason that I left Bain, um, which was actually during my interview process, um, I went numb down the right side of my body. And at the time, wondered if it was maybe a pinched nerve, um, ultimately went to uh, the doctor to get some MRIs after my interviews had finished. Um, and the day before I got my offer, um, or, or maybe, no, it was actually just after I accepted my offer, I found out that I'd been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, uh, one of the sort of early onset multiple sclerosis, which is uh, relapsing remitting, which means you have um, issues maybe every six to 12 months, uh, they can be longer, they can be less, um, can manifest in all sorts of different ways. So, so definitely a, um, definitely the kind of thing that stops you in your tracks. Um, but at the time I accepted the, the offer to Bain um, and said, I'm going to give this a go. And, you know, I, I came up with all sorts of frameworks, like I'm only going to work from 9 to 9 p.m. Um, I'm going to create a slide that sort of educates people on my operating system and what's different about me and why maybe I have some different limitations than other people. Um, and ultimately, because I wanted to be successful in consulting, I, I found myself pushing past that time and time and time again. And so eventually I did this case where I, I, I got so sick I had to take a couple of months off. Um, and it was really clear to me that for me to reach what I believe to be um, success within that that job I was gonna have to keep making myself sick and so that was sort of that was the breaking point right and I had these expectations about what success looked like um particularly in that job and so there was this sort of thought process that frankly probably took six to nine months longer than it should have to make a decision to leave and so I would say that was really the first step. Um, and then the second piece was exactly what we talked about, which was what gives you energy um, and talking to a whole lot of people. And so I essentially did the LinkedIn thing, right? The LinkedIn detective work. I reached out to multiple people, multiple friends of friends. Um, and, and many of those conversations turned into interview opportunities, even though I hadn't found a job listing. And um, it gave me the opportunity to interview for big tech companies on the West Coast, for startups on the West Coast. 
And I kept coming back to this passion from earlier in my life, singing and acting, which was really about media and consumer. And, you know, I think to do that, New York is a great place to be. And so I, I kept saying something's missing here. I had two or three job offers on the West Coast. Um, but I said, where, what's happening in New York? And so I found, I, I did actually find a job listing for this chief of staff role. And at the time, you know, AOL to me meant, you know, my screen name, right? My AIM screen name, Nish Nish 67. And, and that was all. I didn't, I didn't know anything else about the company. Um, and so what was really interesting about that, and, and you're right, like people said, um, you know, why don't you go work for a blue chip tech firm, go to Google, go to Amazon, go to an academy brand. And this was one of those sort of defined, career defining moments because I chose to work for a person instead of a company. And so Susan who's actually now my partner, and, and that's a different thread to this story, you know, had been a three-time CEO, had been this, the first professional CEO of Guilt. Prior to that, she'd been the CEO of Martha Stewart when Martha was in jail. And before that, she'd been the co-president of ABC Entertainment, where she greenlit Lost, Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, and The Bachelor. And so if you don't want to work for someone like that, you're crazy. <laughs> Um, and and the other thing was this, you know, chief of staff roles are really unique um, and they really run the gamut from sort of, um, you know, uh, personal assistant or executive assistant on steroids to being a real kind of 2IC for a CEO. And when you get to that, that top end, that end of the spectrum where you can step in for the CEO when you're running a portion of the business, which in my case ended up being strategy and operations, you're in this really interesting arena where you, you have the opportunity to run a part of the business ultimately. Um, most importantly, you get to be a trusted advisor to a CEO. And so the access that you have to senior executives and the ability to get inside the mind of a CEO is just hugely valuable and can, can be a real professional defining moment if, um, if that's something that you, that you love. And, and I certainly did. And it's, um, it's part of the chemistry of, of a great sort of CEO chief of staff relationship, which, which Susan and I really had. That's beautiful to hear. And you both have created so much more amazingness even after working together at AOL, which we'll dig into in a little bit. But one thing I really want to underscore that you said was really working with a manager or a boss or a person that you truly admire, right? I think there are so many times where you're more so focused on the specific position or a job within a company. And I think not enough people really look to who are you going to be necessarily working under. So for example, even in my career, when I was pivoting from finance to tech, everybody thought I was crazy. No one was giving me a job because they thought, you know, what finance related skills apply to running a tech company. And I accepted a really interesting role at American Apparel. And at that time, 
at the bank I was with, we actually kicked them out because they went bankrupt as everybody knows. And it was really an opportunity where they were completely revolutionizing their e-commerce platform. And when I met with my manager, shout out to Sanaz, she was absolutely incredible. I knew I could learn so much, you know, working under her. And it was one of my most amazing experiences I've ever had. And honestly, the most joyful. So I think, you know, there are opportunities where you can work under someone who can truly be pivotal in anyone's career, similar to how it worked out for you. So going back to your chief of staff role within AOL, you actually were given an opportunity to run one of their businesses. Can you share more about how that specific opportunity came about and key takeaways that you had from that experience? Yeah, well, I love talking about this because that opportunity showed up in all the least impressive ways, right? Like, like not the story you want to hear from a leader you're, you're sort of like looking to learn from. And I say that because I asked for that opportunity in completely the wrong way. So we had this website that we were considering shutting down. It was a celebrity gossip website. And someone said to me, you know, you should take that over. And I was like, well, you know, I already have a job and I've never run a website before and I'm not qualified. And, um, you know, there's, there's just no way that, that I would be given this opportunity. and I'm not ready for that. And someone said to me, and it was, of course, a guy, um, and, and my brother and I had this conversation as well. They said, you're crazy. Like, why are you not qualified to run this? And I said, well, I've never done it before. And they said, well, as soon as you do it, you'll have done it. Um, so I went to Susan and I said, you know, do you think that maybe I could possibly take over this site? And, you know, I, I mean, basically I was like, I promise not to fuck it up. But, you know, I know I'm underqualified, but please give me this chance, which I can tell you right now was the world's worst pitch. And, and to her credit, she and I had been working together for some time and she said, sure. And, you know, I, I love telling that story because I think we've all had those moments. And, you know, I would just, I would never do that again, right? I, I, like my advice is to all women, just because you haven't done something, that doesn't mean you're not qualified for it. Um, and, and so, I think the story fast forwards, um, and this has been one of my favorite jobs actually, because it was a it was a time just before Facebook paid took off, and you could still build an organic brand that grew virally. And so I really got the opportunity to essentially run, you know, kind of like a startup team, three people, no budget. I had to become a self-taught product manager, editorial director, growth strategist. Um, you know, re-envision a positioning for this website, understand what the brand meant to its readers, redefine that, um, come up with a new brand voice, a new editorial voice. And so it was a really great lesson in kind of how do you build a brand from scratch? And we quadrupled the traffic to that site in nine months. Uh, we grew a social social following to about half the size of the Huffington Post. For for context, they had three hundred people. We had three, um, and so it was a really you know just joyful experience of creating and and getting to work with a a, a team of ten ten amazing people. 
I love that. And what I actually love so much is if you didn't take that opportunity and jump right in, you probably wouldn't have even known that you enjoyed the process of rebuilding a business and you did incredibly well. And I'm sure, you know, much better than you even expected. So I'm sure those were definitely fun times in your life. And if I read this correctly, I believe an offshoot of what you were working on there turned into this pretty amazing platform you started for young girls called Built by Girls. I love what you're doing there and the mission behind it. Can you talk to us more about that initiative? Yeah, I mean, so part of this was um, really what we talk about with every startup, which is kind of what what differentiates you as a product and market. And so when I was running this celebrity gossip website, the, the gem there was, well, well, all celebrity content is really very commodified. And so what could be different about this platform? We had an audience of 13 to 24-year-old girls pr- predominantly. Um, and, and that was kind of a moment when the concept of the multifaceted young millennial or Gen Z girl was sort of coming coming to the fore. And so we said, well, well let's actually rethink this site and make it about more than just celebrity because girls are consuming everything from coding content to celebrity content right now. And so we hired um, five 17-year-old girls as interns and said, help us rethink the site. And so what we put them through was actually a um, really like a six-week course in how to run a digital media site. So they learned everything from product development to design, mobile development, all the way to advertising and monetization strategy, to social audience development, to really thinking about the strategy of a a media site at whole. Um, And and so we rebranded the site as a site for girls, built by girls. And, you know, what what was fascinating about that moment, you know, I spent a lot of time with with companies on developing brand. Um, and, And often there's like very deep brand strategy behind a new brand. And in this case, it was completely organic. We we were spending time with Girls Who Code and, and the interns had come out of Girls Who Code. And, you know, they had a hashtag and we were thinking about putting content out into the world. And that hashtag was Girls Built This. And, and I'd had in my head this sort of, I love alliteration. Um, and I was like, well, I really think Built by Girls sounds better. And I really love that we're using the word girls because we're taking it back. And I know 40-year-old women who call them and their, their girlfriends girls, right? Um, and I, I loved how action-oriented that sounded and, and that the world could be built by young women. Um, and so we said, well, let's use this hashtag to um, collate all the content that's happening around this. and. And then I had a whole bunch of stickers made. And the next thing you know, these stickers were all over laptops, um, you know, across the company. And uh, I see celebrities with them and women in tech that have them. And so it it really sort of, I think, just resonated as a statement. Um, But how that evolved into Built by Girls was, so I actually ran a similar internship like that a couple of times. And my question was always like, how do you take that opportunity, that gem, and give it to hundreds of thousands of girls? And, you know, it really goes back to the opportunities I had as a, as a young kid, which was I had these two big brothers who'd done everything before me and 
could teach me how to write a resume and how to write a great intro email. And, you know, I thought, why can't a girl in Ohio whose parents run a 7-Eleven get that same access? Because it's available to us through the power of the crowd. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate because of my circumstances. And so I said, well, let's take the idea of that, that internship and use all these incredible professionals in tech um, and offer that to girls one-on-one -on -one through a program. And that's how we came up with this program called WAVE, which is the sort of the marquee program of the Built by Girls platform. And so we rolled the celebrity gossip website actually into the Huffington Post because we had this awesome millennial audience um, and, and launched Built by Girls as an independent kind of startup within AOL. And, and really got to build that brand from scratch. Um, and so I learned a lot about sort of organic consumer growth for this very loyal girl audience. And, and today it's a platform that uses an algorithm to match girls and professionals across the country and give girls their first crack into the tech industry. Um, you know, with the idea being that like networks and who you know are always gonna be important. Um, and, and how do we give girls those opportunities? And so today it kind of offers um, a whole set of resources and guides, but these one-on-one -on -one meetings between girls and Silicon Valley engineers and um, you know from, from top tech companies all around the country, and not just engineering, product, UX, UI, um, all, all sorts of roles. I literally have goosebumps listening to you because I think that is so, so important. And, you know, a lot of women feel a little bit intimidated by business or tech. And of course, I'm generalizing right now, but I do love how you're fundamentally starting at an earlier age and you're giving them these amazing opportunities and awareness and connecting them with individuals that they wouldn't necessarily have access to. I think you're doing really important work there and we'll definitely link Built by Girls in our show notes as well. So clearly you're very passionate about supporting girls and women. I'd love to hear more about your motivation around starting your venture fund BBG Ventures with Susan. Did you ever have the intention of getting into the VC world? Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of people, I think, are um, sort of surprised to hear this, but I think it's more common than not that I really fell into venture. Um, and, and sometimes I think that's the best way into venture because having um, a sort of unique set of experiences gives you a different perspective on building businesses. Um, so we, we actually started talking about this around the time that I was working on Built by Girls. And, you know, I was working with this audience of 75% 13 to 24 year old girls. And Susan was meeting with all these new female founders because at the time she'd been at Gilt, Gilt had really been ground zero for female founders because it had female founders and, you know, in that sort of period of five years, I think 2007 on, it was a really interesting moment in technology where a new type of founder was emerging. They didn't have to be an engineer. Um, and, and women were really sort of coming to the idea of starting businesses within, the, let's call it the venture capital ecosystem through, through their own personal experiences, through different disciplines like consulting or coming out of business school or having worked for a company where they'd seen a pain point and wanted to solve it. Um, 
And so Susan and I started talking about not only the people she was meeting and, and she'd been an advisor to those many of those early female founders, that first wave, um, but we also started talking about the market. So, you know, women are the majority uh, consumer, right? They, they make or influence 85% of purchasing decisions. Um, they're also the majority user of nearly every single mobile and social platform. Pinterest, Instagram, I think they edge out men on Facebook, uh, not so much on Reddit, but they can have that one. Um, and, you know, things like use of the camera phone, right? Um, spending money in the, the app store on mobile gaming, women, women, women. Um, and then in addition to that, women driving the success of these early breakouts like Snapchat, even Pokemon Go had an early base of young female consumers. And so we really said, you know, if if women are the dominant consumer, perhaps it stands to reason that they might have a competitive advantage in building for that consumer. And venture capital was really overlooking them as a, as a source of innovation and, and as a result for funding. And so it was really our thesis that we could find alpha and drive returns by investing in female founders uh, where traditional venture capital was, was overlooking them. I mean, not only is it the right thing to do, but also from a returns perspective, the potential you can make for your fund's investors, I think, is very much there. And I believe you're on your third fund right now. Yeah, we are on our third fund. Amazing. So honestly, in all of our interviews with entrepreneurs, we're always diving deep into how they think about funding, what they did for their own business. And I would say most of them, if they went down the VC route or attempted to go down the VC route, they've really mentioned that their idea never resonated with the investors. And they would hear things like, you know, from the investors that I have to go talk to my wife or daughter because they didn't understand what they were trying to build. But I think, you know, the industry clearly is still dominated by men. That's obviously changing. But I think there's just so much potential in investing in women, even to this day. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point, you know, I think our thesis has really evolved. It we, we started with what we felt was a low hanging fruit because we had networks with women. But, you know, the first couple of slides of one of our decks basically have all these faces of traditional venture investors, right? And it's it's pretty old, pale and male frankly. Um, and then you flip to a slide, which is what the population of the US looks like. And it's black and it's brown and it's um, Asian and it's young and it's old and it's, it's straight and it's gay and everything in between. And I think um, what we really keenly feel is, you know, women, yes, but intersectionality as well. And so, if we think about what does the face of the consumer look like today, it looks like all those things. And so you really, you know, in addition to gender, um, you need an additional lenses of, of diversity to really be able to, and, and our thesis has evolved into this sort of, you know, who are the, who are the underrepresented, overlooked founders building solutions to consumer problems for the 99%? Um, and so, so really thinking about diversity in a broad base um, to solve, solve problems for everyone in America, not just a certain segment of people. And so we've, we've really been thinking about, as you said, there's so much potential in women and, and overlook founders, more generally speaking. Absolutely. There's so much opportunity with women and overall underrepresented founders as well. And I would love for you actually to 
take a step back and talk about venture capital as a whole. There's so many amazing women who are listening who are starting businesses or thinking about starting their own business, and they might not be too familiar with raising money from venture capitalists. So I'd love for you to talk about the different funding sources that might be available to them and really what you look for. Yeah, I do love talking about this because I think, um, you know, it's become cool to raise money and be a startup founder. And somewhere along the way, being an entrepreneur or a small business owner became less sexy. And let me tell you, they both involve a lot of hard work as every you know entrepreneur or business owner listening to this knows. And so I think it's really, really important to consider uh, what is the right type of funding for you and for your business. And, and I think one frame to put on that is to sort of say, what are my goals in relation to growth and revenue or profitability? So if I want to build a business that focuses on, you know, stable long-term growth and getting to profitability um, versus really fast growth, top line revenue. That's kind of the difference between maybe a small growing business and a startup. Um, if I want to grow within sort of comfortable limits versus have a very high tolerance for risk and failure and try to get as big as quickly as possible. Again, small business versus startup. If I want to own more of my company versus give up ownership, small business versus startup. And I think the one thing that's um, really overlooked in this puzzle, and actually Mark Andreessen has a great post on this, but it is you know, really venture capital is most useful for the businesses where there is um, a new technology or even a new category or business model that requires capital for that fast acceleration of capital. Um, and, and it's that venture capital funding that will help build that, build it quickly and meet those milestones. Um, now, a, a great example of this is, you know, we see a lot of beauty companies, a lot of home goods companies, many of which will be uh, really strong businesses that drive profit for their founders. Um, not many of those businesses are right for venture capital. Now, if a business comes along, call it in the home goods sector or, or um, uh, home, home products, cleaning products, and I'll take an example, a company like Blue Land, which we've invested in, that has something unique in the formulation, the technology or the buying model, then that would be a good reason for venture capital. So Blue Land has two of those. Um, it has one, a new business model, which is refillability or reusability. They send you these acrylic bottles that look beautiful in your home. Um, you fill it with water and you put a tablet in it that creates your cleaning product and they send you the tablet. So you're not constantly buying bottles full of water. Um, and so this idea of reusability, new business model, um, but then they also have a very unique proprietary formulation, right? They've spent a lot of time on R&D and that those first products have provided sort of the, the stable ground to build new products and build them very quickly. So that's a business that I think is more, more likely to need venture capital. And, and obviously software businesses um, are really great candidates for that as well. And so, 
You know, I think the the important point is you, you can get a small business off the ground, right, with, with loans or crowdfunding. Um, but when you start getting into venture investment, you, you start giving up ownership of your company. And I think the ownership piece is an important one. And it's also important to remember that it's not pejorative to have a small business that's growing, right? I, I love using this example of... Um, uh, this deodorant brand called Native, which sold to P&G. Uh, they bought it for $100 million. The founder raised $500,000. He owned like 90-something percent of the company when it sold. So, so you can make a lot of money as a, call it, quote, unquote, small business owner who didn't raise venture capital. And, you know, when you compare that with some of the consumer companies that have, have listed, um, you know, and, and maybe not listed at, you know, a higher price in the most recent private valuation, um, you can really see there, there are pros and cons. And so, so I always love to say, you know, you don't necessarily need venture money, which sounds like I'm putting myself out of business. Um, but I think it's a really good conversation for every entrepreneur to have, have with themselves. I totally agree. And I think, you know, weighing the pros and cons is so important to whatever route you end up taking. And it's just so important to do your research and see if venture capital is a right fit for you before you jump into this new world. And, you know, the last thing you want is to be surprised and not be able to meet expectations. So switching gears a bit, you've met with so many founders between you and Susan. You both have invested in, I believe, over 60 startups to date. I would love to get your perspective on what you think truly makes a good founder or a great founder. Yeah, definitely. And I think... Actually, we're up to 75 companies now across the three funds, uh, and we're only just getting into to fund three. Um, so we've seen probably in the last seven years about over, over 7,000 companies. Um, so it's a lot of pitches. Um, and I, I think, you know, there are a couple of things that ring true. I mean, obviously, there are sort of a number of the you know, um, personality traits that that many people will talk about, like resilience and grit. Um, but one of the things we really look for is this ability to balance big vision with execution. So I think there are a lot of people out there with great ideas, but an idea is just an idea. And without the execution, it's, it's, it's definitely not a billion dollar company. Um, and so I think we're, we're always looking for indicators that, that the founder um, can either hire to execute um, or has an execution DNA on their own. And so that leads me to a second kind of aspect, which is this idea of self-awareness, um, understanding what you, what you need around you to be really successful. Um, and so I think great founders hire really well, and often that's a complementary co-founder. Um, but it really means having the ability to know what is your superpower. And so when we're looking at a company and making an assessment, we're really looking to see, does this team, does this founder have the relevant set of superpowers to make this particular company succeed? Or are they kind of figuring it out as they go along? And will that learning curve be, be longer than is necessary to meet those growth milestones? Um, so, so big vision, execution, 
great hiring, self-awareness. Um, there are a few other aspects as well. I, I think, you know, founders have to be great storytellers because they're raising money um, and they're selling to a consumer. And if you can tell a great story, you can cover both your fundraising and your customer. Um, and, you know, I, I also think great founders really know how to partner well. They know how to use network effects to create amplifying partnerships. Um, and the final couple of traits I would say we love to see is, you know, that person who's always thinking three steps ahead, um, who even if they don't have an answer now, have, have covered that in their brain and are thinking about how they might solve it or set up to solve it. And then finally have that kind of flexibility to adjust to be open to feedback, not just from their investors, but from their customers. And so that really wraps itself into this idea of, you know, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's the very nature of obviously life, but, but also of startups and, and something's always changing, something's always failing. And, and you really have to be nimble and, and be able to, um, you know, roll with the punches. That actually leads me to another question I have. You know, this year there's been so much uncertainty and I'm sure a lot of the founders that you've invested in are consistently pivoting and doing their best to navigate this new world that we're in. From your perspective, are there certain things that you're seeing successful founders do at this time or even mistakes that they're making that you can share with us? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think... You know, one of the things that we've seen work really well, and I think is a is a lesson not just for COVID, but for running startups generally, um, which is making hard decisions fast, right? And this goes for letting go of the employee that isn't right for the role. Um, it goes for you know, adjusting a strategy that you had a lot of faith in that isn't working. Um, you know, in the case of COVID, it's, you know, aggressive cash conservation when COVID hit. And I think sort of ripping off the Band-Aid um, to put a business in the best place of strength it can work from um, is really, has been really a critical piece of the puzzle. Um, I would say on the flip side, the companies that have succeeded um, are the companies that have done values work really early and have taken the time to, to understand as a company who they represent, who they want to be, how the company should work internally so that everyone's on the same page. And I, th I think that's important for any company probably at any time. But at a time when things are all over the place, you can come back to those values, right? Like, how do you want to treat your employees? How do you want to speak to your customer? And I think an extrapolation of that is what we've been seeing in market about, um, well, around how companies have responded to these, these um, really important movements for social justice. And so the companies that had done values work and knew who they were speaking to or who used the opportunity to look inward, uh, really assess, really reflect on their own behaviours and, and adjust for that, um, 
who had more authentic responses were the companies that are succeeding, um, not only internally, but in the eyes of the consumer. And I think companies who wrote quick responses, posted black squares, um, that didn't quite work out for those companies. Yeah, that's definitely helpful to know. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. I actually want to close on one last question. You know, one thing that you mentioned that strong founders do is really their ability to have a strong and compelling story. So you get so many pitches that come your way of, from new businesses. I'd love to get your perspective. Are there any few tips or key advice that you could share with our listeners as they're looking to craft their own story? Yeah, well... That's one of my favorite topics. And I think we could do a whole podcast on that, which we should do at some point. Um, But I would say, you know, one thing, and this is kind of where we started this conversation a little bit, right, is preparation. So knowing your story back to front and being able to flex between the 30 second version, the 10 minute version and the 30 minute version, being able to do it with slides, without slides, is a really underestimated tactical skill um, that I think founders can really benefit from. So that's on the tactical side. And then on the strategic side, I would say there are really three things that need to come through in your pitch. And, And obviously you need all the things, right? Competition, traction, uh, how am I gonna use this money? But, But the things we're really looking to see is why this product, why now, and why you and your team. Um, And if you can really hit on what is so different or valuable about this product, what is it about this moment or the dynamics in the market that make that product sing? And what what is so special about you and your team that mean you are the right people to do this? Then that is a convincing story. I'm taking mental notes as you're going through that, because I think it's so imperative that we all have our story down, right? And we really understand those three aspects that you mentioned, because it applies to so many different aspects of your life, right? Even if you're not fundraising and meeting with different investors to pitch your company, I think, you know, even hiring employees or creating a partnership or working with different manufacturers and negotiating with them, I think really being able to share your story can absolutely come in handy in so many aspects of your life. So I think we should absolutely do a second part at some point (laughs) soon. But Nisha, thank you so much for joining us today. I had so much fun chatting with you and learning more about your background and story. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, thanks Yasmin for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm looking forward to more. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.